This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Hello and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. In the mix this morning, inspirational Irish poet Ivan Boland reveals the difference between writing poems and being a poet. People write beautiful poems, such interesting, compelling poems, and you can read them in workshop and be so moved. And you can very quickly say that person doesn't want to be a poet. They have written the poem, but they don't want to be a poet. But there is a place where people want to say, I am a poet. And if you are that person, you do want to do that thing, then it really has to be your experience and your poem. And for those feeling a little bit sleepy and somewhat rough for wear, brace yourself. We're climbing Everest with adventure mountaineer Graeme Hoyland to hear the compelling story of Mallory and Irvine's fatal ascent of Everest and how an intriguing family story about a missing camera got young Graeme hooked on climbing Everest and retrieving his famous family heirloom. He told this amazing story. He was 86 years old and he was telling me at the age of 12 how he had lent his camera to his friend George Mallory on Mount Everest in 1924 and how George Mallory had disappeared up into the clouds with his friend Sandy Irvin carrying my cousin's camera and they disappeared forever. And old Howard Somerville said to me, if you could find that camera, you could prove that George Mallory climbed Everest first. I decided then and there I would try and learn how to climb, try and climb Mount Everest for myself and hunt for that camera. But first, Ivan Boland's exquisite poetry has empowered generations of Irish poets and women for over 40 years. Her poems confront some of the more uncomfortable and hidden issues in Irish society and of course the challenges facing women and mothers in contemporary Ireland. Well, earlier in the week I was delighted to spend some time with Ivan and here her insightful and courageous views on the institution of marriage, on motherhood and on Irish culture. I began by asking Ivan about the role of the poet. It's, of course, a huge question and the truth is there's no one answer. It always comes back to me that when Nelson Mandela was inaugurated, I remember reading in the newspaper the account of the inauguration. I remember being surprised and very interested that his inaugural poet was a Zulu warrior poet. Of course, he has partly a Zulu background. The Zulu are a great warrior tribe, but they aren't thought of as a great poetry tribe. But there was somebody writing out of the collective of their tribe and their people, and they could have told you immediately what the role of the poet was, but it might be different than I would think of it. So in almost every generation, every place, The poet stands for an intersection between life and language, but it does change. And when somebody raised a poem in 1925, and it was maybe the way sound, somebody said, is that a poem at all? They were trying to say that the role of the poet had changed, and it does change. But poetry has that huge ability to humanise us, to connect people to their hearts, and also to bring people to extraordinary places. 
Yes, and I think it's very interesting when people say, you know, people don't read poetry, people don't care about poetry. And I'm never resistant or irritated when people say that. I mean, there's plenty of arts I don't understand. But I do know that there's an enormous amount of people who carry around a few lines of poetry all their lives and their minds, a few words, a verse, something that seems to them to be a photograph of their feelings in a very particular way. So I think in that way, poetry has an extraordinary power that isn't quite like anything else. We have a huge tradition in Ireland. And, you know, a family funeral, the death of a loved one, a wedding, any celebrations or tragedies, poetry takes down their stage, yet it's always seen somewhere out there. Why is that? There are a lot of reasons why poetry was so prominent in a country and in Ireland to start with in a very simple historical way in both languages. Poetry was a fugitive art. It didn't require a symphony or 15 easels or a huge apparatus to bring with you. And for an oppressed people, people on the run, people who had so little, poetry was this art that was their companion that stood beside them all the time. And so you can understand that its reputation for mystique and arrogance is, in my opinion, well-deserved. And really, there should be some way in which every art is held accountable. And in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s, not so much in Ireland, but internationally, the belief that somehow the poem was for the initiated person, the educated person, that was an unforgivable amendment of everything that poetry has always been. In the 19th century, no matter what we thought of all those people, when they finished their meals or their dinners, they opened a book and read poetry to each other when they got engaged, when they baptized their children. The idea that poetry would remain with people was challenged by certain intellectual developments in poetry. And that has not been a good thing for poetry itself. And of course, poetry is a huge celebration or can be a huge celebration in life. It can capture just one moment in time. But it can also be about the ordinary things, the everyday things, the isolation we feel in our suburban houses, the pains that we have, the boredom, whatever it is. It can be. And I think that people look for what's beautiful and powerful. They also look for mirrors, you know. And I mean, it must have been an extraordinary thing at the 17th century when painters actually began to paint the interiors of houses where actual people lived. And I think it has always been very important to me that, you know, if you don't put the life you live into the poem you write, then you're going to end up writing someone else's poem. And therefore, you've got to make that intersection yourself. When I teach workshops, it doesn't matter where I teach them. I do always say there's this very big difference between writing poems and being a poet. People write beautiful poems, such interesting compelling poems and you can read them in workshop and be so moved and you can very quickly say that person doesn't want to be a poet. They have written the poem but they don't want to be a poet. But there is a place where people want to say I am a poet and if you are that person you do want to do that thing then it really has to be your experience and your poem and you can't have anybody standing beside you telling you that your life isn't an important enough subject for a poem. Because if you believe that, you will never write that poem. And I think that ordinariness factors into this because 99.5% of people believe their lives are ordinary. And they're going to, I mean, of course, in the great occasions of war or disaster or extreme love and those things, that may not be true. 
But most people, most of the time, have this ordinary dimension. And if poetry cannot open its doors to that, then it's going to be enormously impoverished as a form. What is extraordinary about your poetry is you opened up that conversation, that dialogue about the struggles that ordinary women face living in suburban Dublin or living somewhere around Ireland. How difficult was it for you to establish that authentic voice and to become that real gritty, honest poet that was going to courageously look at your experience in society and open it up to the rest of the world? Well, it was more difficult than I thought it would be. That would be the first thing. And the second thing was, you know, I I wrote an essay in a recent book. It was about reading sort of appropriate poetry when I was sort of a teenager rather than the poetry I would have chosen. And I called it reading as intimidation. I learned as well as I could in my late teens to try to write a poem at a time when Dublin especially was awash in well-made poems. And I certainly labored, as I thought it, to write a well-made poem. And you can teach yourself an extraordinary amount of bad habits in an extraordinarily short time, which is what I did. And so to go within four or five years to being married, to going to live in suburban Dublin, and having two small children was not only this realization that I was going to have to put things that I knew were valuable and visionary into the poem, but I was going to have to unwrite all those bad habits and, you know, write a poem that wasn't well-made, academically acceptable and all kinds of things. And I knew perfectly well that the subject matter in the literary environment of the day would be regarded as me trivializing the poem, which was. And so for me, all that made much more weather around that than I thought it would. Nevertheless, I think what I was involved in is what every single poet is involved in. You have to try to find your own voice. And though it's a bit of a cliche in terms of poetry, that's all it means. It means you have to find a place where you think your experience is going to find a language that makes it as real for the reader as for yourself. You know, you're talking there about honesty and understanding your experience and communicating it. How honest do you think we are in Ireland today? And how honest has Ireland been on its past? And do you think we can actually move away from that now and be maybe slightly more honest or actually have the courage to be honest? It's very hard for someone like myself, now of an older generation, looking back at an earlier time, to answer that question clearly. When I was at Trinity College, I had a flat in Moorhampton Road. And my mother came with me one day, and we were in Donnybrook. I suppose about 19. And we looked at the Magdalen Laundry. I was fairly new to the neighborhood and said to my mother, what is that? My mother said, these poor girls, when they get into trouble, they come here. And the nuns look after them. And I look back now and I think, did we really have that conversation? Was that the conversation in the air? I think it was. And I don't lay any blame now. It's useless to do so. But that was not an Ireland, not so much that it wasn't honest, but that it had told itself one story. And its story essentially was a story of heroes. And there was substance for the story. I mean, I've said this a lot of times, but I'll say it again as as a young poet. I found for myself a huge difference between the past and history. Irish history was very compelling and powerful. It was a story of heroes of a small country that had triumphed in very emblematic ways over a big one. 
But the past was this murky place of, you know, shadows and silences and evasions where people didn't want to talk about. I became more and more interested in the past and less and less interested in the history. And we found it hard, I found it hard, to look at the past clearly because it was so obviously going to subvert and undermine the story we'd all told ourselves. I think to be able now to realize that the story comes in many parts and that we have an obligation to know it, if not to tell it. I think that has changed. I see that change in Ireland and I hope it has and will change more. And do you think the modern Irish woman is changing that story? Do you think that things have got any better? Whether it's a female poet, whether it's a suburban housewife or a busy young woman with three children working in a bank or in a private company somewhere. Yes, I mean, I see really wonderful accomplishment. I I come back here, spend a lot of time in the States and I see young women on the television in the political sphere on a late night conversation show or I read something or I read an article in the paper and some of it seems to me very moving and eloquent. Often I don't care what the politics are. What I want to see always is, you know, what is in that person's mind and you do want to see that. And yes, I mean, I see this extraordinary level of accomplishment. I do worry in every single place. It's nothing to do with Ireland or the United States or anywhere else. The professional workplace has absorbed women without bending to them. So the professional women, as well as young women in the home, face new incredible pressures that just weren't there 40 years ago, you know. I don't know how people will balance that, but there are also an awful lot of pressures. You know, what are we going to call it a qualification? How are people going to be educated? How are women going to go back into a workplace with, you know, a woman who has been single, pursued something or had a family, is going to be a woman of extraordinary accomplishment in her late 30s. How are they going to be reabsorbed? So there's a lot of changes in the life of women that I see and that I would be very interested in. Do I think that in every way society has bent towards that? No, not not entirely, no. And there's a ferocious amount of judgment on what it means to be a woman in contemporary society. What is the role of the poet in dealing with that and in answering those questions and those grey, murky areas? Well, there I think it's a clearer role. I mean, usually the writer is a dissenting individual. I mean, writers do not come out of the stereotypes of society. Isn't there a triad? Didn't I somebody tell me once there was a, an Irish triad, you know, about the three worst things that could happen to you, you know, sort of have a cow with a fever and a harvest that failed and a child who was a poet, you know, by the time you get to raise the concept of success, a writer is usually not thought of as part of it. So writers are very often privileged witnesses of the fault lines in society, both men and women. And I think they can be real dissenting voices. I would always hope that women writers are advocates for, but at the same time, witnesses to the lives of of women. I mean, that they can unfold a story. And when you finish that story, you think, gosh, I wouldn't have known that without that voice. So I think by being authentic voices, women like all artists of all, you know, gender or nationality, they can dissent from the stereotypes. 
And I'm wondering, has the artistic community, whether it's poets, writers, painters, potters, whatever, have they actually honestly and courageously looked at the differences between men and women and the minefields that is male-female relationships? I think they have. Obviously not in the proper sociological case, because that's for the sociologists. But even when I was a student and I was reading a story by Mary Lavin or or one by John McGahan, they were unfolding these scalded layers of skin between men and women in Ireland. Mary Lavin's story, The Will, or The Barracks by McGahan, these are incredibly painful, unglamorous, and truthful accounts. And just by being there as being those pieces of truth, I think they are a depth charge in the way we talk about and think about and that the early work of Edna O'Brien was so brave and so powerful. So I think, yes, I think that they address it. If the question underneath your question, which is so interesting, is do they change it? I would be very doubtful about that. I don't think artists and writers change things. I think they witness them, write them. You know, it goes back to the question at the beginning, what's a poet? And, you know, I've never thought poetry, for instance, is a wonderful form of expression. I mean, photography is better, drama is better, all kinds of things are better. But it's a great form of experience. It's the unfinished experience of the writer that becomes the fresh, intense experience of the reader. So I think when you have McGarren or Lavin or a writer like Callum Tobin, you lay bare these truths. And once you lay them bare, you can't conceal them again. So you're a witness of sorts. But then surely the onus on the individual reading your poetry or reading Column to Bean is to understand, relate and possibly take action on it. Or is it just to experience it? Is that enough? I think it is always an area of care that you have to take. I mean, an extraordinary story about W.H. Auden and the Spanish Civil War. He wrote a poem called Spain. He had a few lines at the end that were very activist. And then he found the poem on a friend's mantelpiece and he opened the book and he struck out the lines and he wrote in the margin, this is a lie. The danger is that you will, in your impatience with society and hypocrisy, which is so deep in these relations in gender and so wounding, that you will expect that art changes events. It doesn't. It changes people. And that's a different imaginative area. And so I think the artist's obligation is to simply write as well as they can in the truth that they know. The reader's obligation is to read that as carefully as they can. And as I said, I think once these truths are revealed, they can't be concealed again. For those listening who have never maybe been to a poetry reading, are, you know, will know about Yeats or Kavanagh, remember their insert or leavings or poetry, but they're trying to maybe get in touch with a sense of humility or get in touch with a compassionate sense of the world. What would you advise them to do in terms of getting adept in the area or getting used to or just even in terms of discovery? What advice can you give them? I think that there is a sort of very simple rule of thumb. Anything can be good, but it might not be your poem. You don't have to take it home. You know, I often say about a writer, I do see that they're a good writer, but that's not my writer. So if you walk into a bookstore, open that book, see a few lines, think, could that be yours? But it's very much like, you know, going on a date, you're not getting married. You're certainly not getting married. You're going to read it. And you're entitled to look for access. 
often when you go in to teach poetry in a big classroom, you're not teaching the poem. You're teaching access to the poem. You're saying this can absolutely easily be yours. And if you want to do that, have a look. And if you want to walk away, do that too. There is nothing coercive in the act of art. But when I pick up a Ptolemyan poem, I think to myself, this is going to be my poem. And I might pick up something else that I know is of great worth, but it's not going to be mine. And I know for me, Mary Oliver stops me. A few lines from Mary Oliver and it has that ability underneath all the chaos and all the mess to bring me back to a very special or quiet place. It's amazing the powerful effect the poetry can have on anyone at any time to actually allow you to listen. I think that's true. And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of people, what is lost is not at all their ability to read poem, but their confidence that they can read it. So many people in school have had a bad experience with it, or they don't like answering exam questions on it. And I understand that. But Mary Oliver's beautiful poet. And once you read Summit's work, you think, you know, I wouldn't ever want to be without that poem. And that these things simply build up in a very ordinary way. I mean, I have a huge amount of poems in my mind, even if I have to look them up again or something. But they become your own possessions. And you don't want to think of other people being without that. And Temi, in terms of your walking around, and there's probably so many words and narratives going through your head at any given time, what are the stories that you're exploring when you're at home, when, when you're just the private self? It's harder to be conscious about that than you think. I think sometimes you begin something and it just goes nowhere, you know. But sometimes you begin a few lines. You know, I remember when the children were really small and I obviously wasn't going to be able to do anything much. But I had this big old notebook. I think I came down and bought it in Nassau Street or something. It was a big old notebook with brown covers on it or blue covers or something. And I used to be able, even if there was nothing else I could do when they were very small, to write a line or write another line or write a few words. And I was amazed when I would go back that I'd be able to use some of that, you know. So sometimes that's all I'm doing is, you know, doing something and seeing if it'll go somewhere. I don't think you can ever be absolutely certain of where it's going to go. And if if you are, then you're not writing a poem. You're writing a concept, which I wouldn't have any interest in doing. There are things that work out and you often have things that are like pathway poems. They lead you forward to somewhere else and you should follow them. And so sometimes I do. Sometimes, unfortunately, I don't. So it's about choice, belief and confidence. And we could look at that in any areas of our life. It's sticking with it. And part of being a poet or part of being a human being is sticking with it. Sometimes in workshop, I'm asked, what's the thing that is hardest for young poets? What's the most destructive thing? I have absolutely no doubt that what destroys young poets is nothing to do with talent or craft. It's perfectionism. They're so horrified at the poem they write that they don't like, that they don't think it's good enough. And they're so, you know, furious with themselves at what's gone wrong in it that they don't do the next piece. And really a huge amount of what takes you forward, that old cliche, you know, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. It is true, you know, you want to do that. So the most important thing you can do is to have a fairly level-headed attitude to what you don't do well because tomorrow you could try it again and maybe it'll turn out better. So as Beckett says, fail again and fail better. Yes, hopefully the again and the better will be there without the fail the next time. So Ivan, before you go, I think you're going to read 
a very interesting poem called Quarantine. It's from a compilation of poetry that you did some years ago called Against Love Poetry. So can you tell me a little bit about the poem and maybe then we'll get you to read. It goes back to that remark of that difference between the past and history. This is actually from a tiny anecdote. It comes out of the book Mushkel Fein that was published at the beginning of the 20th century. This man, Father O'Leary, looking back at a, a small village in West Cork. I mean, this all happens in about five sentences. And a young couple leave the workhouse and they go back to their cabin on a really bitter night and they're found dead in the morning. And that's it, except for one detail. And that is that when they're found, he's holding her feet against his chest because he tried to warm them as she died. And these people, they have no biography, no history, no complication. They just are there for these few moments and then the lights go out. And, you know, I wrote the poem partly to note that, but also to reproach poetry, especially love poetry, because of its way of excluding these people. You know, writing about the glamour and fever of obsession, but forgetting the huge, unglamorous steadfastness that is in so many people's lives. Quarantine. In the worst hour of the worst season, of the worst year, of a whole people, a man set out from the workhouse with his wife. He was walking, they were both walking north. She was sick with famine fever and could not keep up. He lifted her and put her on his back. He walked like that, west and west and north, until at nightfall, under freezing stars, they arrived. In the morning, they were both found dead, of cold, of hunger, of the toxins of a whole history. But her feet were held against his breastbone. The last heat of his flesh was his last gift to her. Let no love poem ever come to this threshold. There is no place here for the inexact praise of the easy graces and sensuality of the body. There is only time for this merciless inventory. Their death together in the winter of 1847, also what they suffered, how they lived, and what there is between a man and woman, and in which darkness it can best be proved. That is extraordinarily beautiful, Ivan. So simple and so real. Thank you.
And that was Eve Ann Boland reading her poem Quarantine. Coming up next, Graeme Holland reveals some of the mysteries at the top of the world. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.